Hello and welcome back to the podcast. Uh, my guest this week is Chris Castaldo. Chris is Director of Security at TUIU. Uh, Chris, why don't you start off by letting the audience know what is TUIU? Yeah, so uh, TUIU partners with top-tier uh, universities to bring their uh, degree programs online, mostly at the uh, master's level. So instead of having to uproot your life and move to another coast to attend um, the school you want to attend for, say, your MBA, um, you can stay right where you are and complete your entire degree um, online. And you power everything. Uh, so if let's say I live in Phoenix, Arizona, and I want to do a master's program at UNC in North Carolina, I, I'm only communicating with your platform. I'm not, am I dealing directly with uh, North Carolina, University of North Carolina in any way? How, do, how exactly? I'm, I'm just trying to get a sense of as you look at as you look at your organization from a defender standpoint and protecting it, what kinds of data uh, third-party data are you processing? Yep, absolutely. So uh, we handle the entire application process. Um, obviously, the schools still um, retain the ability to approve and deny people into their programs uh, and any interviews. You know, some schools for their master's level programs uh, will do like a Skype interview um, before admittance. So we deal with that entire process. Um, so your application data, transcripts, um, all that information you would submit to a school uh, to apply, uh, we handle all that. Yep. And so, how how do you figure out your threat model? Um, how how big is your organization? Uh, so we're right around two thousand employees. Um, so fairly large, and um, probably double that on the on the endpoint side when you're talking uh, user endpoints and AWS, uh, which is where most of our platform lives. Um, so for us, our threat model, we really focus on uh, what data are we trying to protect, right? So you need to know what you're protecting, why you're protecting it. So obviously in education, you've got FERPA, um, and then now we have GDPR for international students. So we kind of use those to guide us on uh, how we're going to build out our program. Um, and I kind of like to work in an inside-out model. Uh, so what's the data we want to protect? Where does that data live? Um, who has access to that data? And then what do they have access to that data with? You know, is it their endpoint? Is it through a VPN? Um, do they have to get on a jump box in AWS to get to it? Um, so working our way out like that helps helps a lot to reduce scope uh, when you're spending budget money. Um, so that, that's kind of how we uh, approach it at the moment. When you look at your threat model, who who is the potential adversary you're most worried about? Is it the spray and shoot everyday cyber criminals? Do you view your organization as a as a target for quote unquote advanced threat actors? Uh, I don't know if we're a target exactly for APT uh, at the moment. Obviously, um, I would consider us to be in the, the same scope as any of our partner schools, right? They're, they're always a target. Um, and then exactly what you said, the, the kind of spray and pray, uh, phishing campaigns, anything in your uh, Verizon Deeper, <laughs> any right. of the top 10, that's, that's kind of what, uh, what we focus on at the moment. Um, it's not really cost effective uh, to kind of shoot for the moon and, and go for defending against APT, um, at least in my opinion. 
you know, making sure your your budget is spent appropriately against the right threats is is really key to getting the most most bang for your buck, right? I I, I got a million questions for you, so I'm going to try <laughs> I'm going to try and run through them because I, you've been in this you've been in this uh, in this rodeo for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me let me just do some quick hit questions and I'll I'll kind of bounce around. So bear with me. Do sure. you find that today it's much easier to uh, to get budget for cybersecurity and for for defending uh, th- than say it was five years ago? Do you get this sense that uh, you now have complete buy-in from top management all the way up to the CEO, um, or or is that is that still an issue? Uh, no, I would not say at most organizations I've been a part of it's been an issue, um, at least in my group of folks that I speak with, I haven't heard of it being that much of an issue anymore. I mean, it's really front and center for executives, members of the board, like everyone knows this is something that needs to be prioritized at the business level. And it's not just an IT risk anymore, right? It's, it's got real world consequences, um, especially looking at like, uh, you know, SCADA systems, right. That could have, uh, health, uh, and life issues. Right. So, I think I think now today, uh, opposed to five, even ten years ago, uh, it's it's much easier to get a reasonable budget, right? Not uh, not everything you could uh, hope and wish for, but uh, enough to protect the organization at the right level. Right, I'm, and this is the same story I'm hearing across the board: is uh, budget is not necessarily the big issue. The biggest issue is, uh, you know, just trying to figure out what your priorities are and how to allocate budget and resources to. Uh, what the top the top priorities are in the organization, whether it's fintech, education, uh, whatever sector you're in, what would you say uh, is your top priority? I noticed you mentioned early in the conversation about uh, you know knowing where assets are, knowing who has access to it. Uh, asset management, asset discovery continues to be a, a big pain point for CISOs and security directors. How are you handling? Let's focus entirely on that. How are you? you know, trying to get you and your team's heads wrapped around uh, uh, not just asset management, but even if you have an asset management solution in place, like the discovery part, knowing what is where, what stage it's in, what state it's in, is it patched, is it vulnerable to something? How how do you, uh, you know, without giving out your secret sauce, but how do you, how do you uh, deal with this issue and how do you recommend others, uh, your peers in the industry listening to this to maybe get a different perspective? Yeah, so uh, let, we're we're no different than any other organization trying to um, be able to say we know every single thing um, and every single person that is on our network and in our environment. Um, that that's definitely something uh, we uh, have in common with with every other large organization out there. So um, th- there's a lot of different things. There's there's tooling. So there's tons of tools out there from. Avanti, Tanium, all, all that type of stuff that can help you do that discovery um, and, as, and also cataloging. So not knowing just what's there now, but what was there a month ago, two months ago, three months ago, um, especially in like containerized environments, being able to know when something got spun up and spun down, 
um, having that kind of telemetry and flight data recorder, if you will, being able to go back in time uh, and, and do those type of investigations, uh, you know, if, if an incident came up. And then on the, the other side, um, on the human side, who, who is on your network? So I know what the device is, but who's using it, right? Um, and having that user kind of user behavior analytics, you know, popular UEBA term, um, having that telemetry as well. So you know who's doing what on what and with what data. Um, like I was saying at the beginning, we really try to focus on what data we have, where is it, who's accessing it. Um, so that's really a critical critical component for uh, for our whole asset management uh, system. And then third, making sure you have really tight integrations at a human level with your teams that are responsible for those systems, right? So we, we, my team doesn't manage all of our endpoints. That's, that's our IT and infrastructure. So making sure we're in communication with them. We know when systems are being deployed. We know when they're being deprovisioned. So then we can catalog that in our systems uh, that we use to track and, and monitor. So we're not looking for things that aren't there anymore, right? One of the things I keep hearing, even in 2018, is that patching is hard, if not impossible. Is that accurate or is that just marketing messaging from the patch patch management folks? And g- give me a sense of what goes into uh, the nuts and bolts in your organization on, say, uh, Microsoft Patch Tuesday or a day when, uh, you know, uh, Oracle or uh, one of the big vendors ship a patch. Are we still looking at, you know, one month patch testing before we try to figure out deployment? What is the state of uh, just getting on top of patch management today? Yep. So uh, again, not not unique to uh, to many or to our organization that that we uh, also have to deal with patches. Um, Besides the technical components of like having a tool to deploy the patches, being able to work with those teams um, that have to deploy them and having um, a really strong relationship with them so they understand um, why they have to patch, why it's critical, why they need to work it into their backlog or this week's sprint, or they have to push off a feature to um, you know spend resources to deploy a patch. Um, Giving context is really, really important. So one of the things we're doing is uh, the the scanning system we use. Um, We make sure everything um, that comes out of that is triaged by our team. We create a ticket. That ticket's grouped into um, an Epic, so we use Jira. Uh, And then we package that all together for those stakeholders, whether it's the BA or system owner. Um, So there's little to no work that's needed on that and on their end to understand what's expected of them and what they need to do to remediate that vulnerability or apply that patch um so it's it's really a i think a relationship issue Uh, like my entire career that's always been um probably the most difficult thing is is getting patching to a comfortable level um but it also comes down to to risk management i think that's really everything we do is gets boiled down to if we're going to take this risk or not. Is it more risky to, to not apply this patch or is it more risky to apply this patch and now we've got to upgrade five or six other dependent systems that are maybe dependent on some le- legacy application or legacy piece of code? Uh, it's, it's not as simple as just, you know, 
hitting hitting okay and then rebooting the system you, know, you see a lot of a lot of people after you know wanna cry or petra or any of that stuff came out um just like completely trash talking people that that were affected by it but when you have like an environment of 10 20 30,000 devices that you need to apply these patches to it's it's not as easy as just like hitting that button and and going to town right there's there's really a lot of considerations that have to happen you have to have buy in you need to communicate uh, there's just so many so many more um, nuances that you really have to think about before yeah, absolutely. I think if you read the Equifax story and their Apache struts uh, issues around getting that patch, it was not a, a straightforward issue. And that's why I asked the question, and you know, you mentioned risk management. When you, you know, get on the train in the evening and you're heading home, what is the the one gnawing thing at the back of your head that you know makes that gives you issues around burnout and just stress and worry? Uh, I, would say probably workload, right? Um, my, my number one thing you, you were talking about number one priorities. Um, my number one priority when I come in is, is my team. Um, because those are the people that are, that are executing our mission, right? So we could buy all the fancy next gen, everything, but if you don't have the talent in house that you're caring for and nurturing and maintaining, um, that burnout's going to set in really, really quick. Um, so making sure I'm limiting their work in progress, making sure that they're getting the appropriate amount of downtime, that they're not just taking on everything. Cause, um, I, I'm pretty fortunate to have, um, as talented as team that, that we have here, that everyone's just like so dead set on our mission and making sure we're as secure as we can be. Um, you know, not to the, the 10th and nth degree, but, you know, an appropriate um, size for a threat landscape. Um, so making sure those folks are not um, burning out is, is really critical. Um, and that, that really is my number one priority since I stepped in the doors is building out that team and making sure we've got the right folks with the right skills um, in the seats uh, and happy. Yeah, the, right. pe- the people part of the equation, which, you know, brings me to another point. Uh, you are not unlike all your peers, not only making sure, uh, trying to make sure people are happy and people are, 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 are productive and, and uh, living in stress-free environments, but just finding quality people in this, uh, in this uh, uh, retrenchment-proof environment is a huge challenge. Uh, I notice uh, two of you is is doing a bunch of hiring. You're looking for upsec folks. You're you know aggressively trying to uh, find and hire the right people to put into your organization. How do you do that in 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 an environment where one you're not alone and you're you're competing with the Googles, Ubers, uh, and the big companies for the same set of talent? Is that a a huge challenge? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, luckily I've got a really amazing recruiting team that I get to rely on here to you. Um, we, what are you guys doing differently from others? 
<laughs> um, you know, I don't know if we're doing anything differently, but uh, I try to make sure one, again, like I haven't seen everyone's recruiting process, but one that our um, process when once the candidate comes to me, that it's as quick and smooth as possible, that they get feedback as quickly as possible. Um, and again, our recruiting team is, is really good at that. Uh, you know, there's, I don't think there's ever been a time where you know, you would make, you'd uh, apply for a role and it would just go into a black hole and you'd never hear anything back. Um, so I think that's really important. And that's kind of a very important thing for, for to you as a company is to like have that white glove, human touch part of it that you're not just like applying to some robotic system and we're just doing keyword searches. Um, there, there's a lot that uh, I make sure that goes into ensuring that people feel like they're an important part even before they step in the door, right? So making sure our process is clear, it's to the point, it's short. I'm 100% aware that if someone's applying here, they're probably applying somewhere else. And there's, you know, how many other companies are we going up against, you know, just in Manhattan alone, um, where some of our openings are, uh, but also Maryland as well. So, so knowing who else we're going against. And then like, what are our differentiators? Like a big mm -hmm. thing for my team is you're, you're kind of getting to come in near the beginning where you can really uh, have an impact on what you're passionate about. Um, so that's kind of one of the, one of the main selling points I try to get across. Um, and also that I, I think I'm a pretty good, uh, pretty good manager and put people first. So, uh, you know, I try to really uh, communicate that uh, when I'm talking to folks. A big part of that as well is making sure that you're not handling everything yourself, turning to tools, turning to solutions and outsourcing parts of uh, uh, parts of the security work. Can we talk a little bit about, you know, how you decide what you want to outsource versus keeping in house? Um, uh, I know you've talked publicly in the past about um, uh, uh, importance of penetration testing. Uh, the importance of doing security assessments and getting independent eyeballs on code and the way you set up your things. Um, do you, let me ask this: Do you do you have a bug bounty program? Uh, we don't at the moment, uh, but that's something on our uh, on our roadmap. Mm -hmm. uh, it just wasn't uh, an appropriate fit for since I joined, when, which, which has been uh, just in the last ten months. Um, but definitely something we're looking into. I see a lot of people getting a lot of value out of it. Um, it just uh, wasn't the number one thing when I uh, walked in the door. But you're doing you're doing traditional penetration testing. Yep. So I think that is incredibly important for an organization. Um, I'd say even even as small as like a Series A startup, if you're developing code, just having someone come in, having that second set of experienced eyes that's seen, you know, tens, hundreds, maybe even thousands of applications in their pen testing career um, to really accelerate um, and kind of act as a force multiplier. Um, again, that goes back to hiring, right? Hiring is not easy. So where are those gaps that you can bring in a firm that's experienced in a specific area and get that value immediately instead of, you know, waiting two, three months, four, six months to hire someone. And it takes, you know, three or four months for them to really come up to speed, really know your environment um, and build their relationships with the folks they have to work with. Instead, you can, you know, augment that with some, with some third party. I think that's completely appropriate for, for just about any organization. One of the pushbacks I'm getting from startups and other folks talking about uh, this, 
you know, reliance on third-party pen testing and third-party security assessments is uh, the fact that these things are point in time. They give you uh, uh, a report or a, a, a viewpoint of what your organization looked like at the time it was scoped with this set of things in scope. And, you know, organized, uh, the, the uh, environment is changing so rapidly, code is being added regularly. How do you uh, get to a comfort level uh, using uh, traditional pen testing when there is that hiccup, there is that point in time, call it, let's call it a weakness. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if it is a point in time, which it, which it typically is, unless you have some type of as a service model um, with an organization. And that's what I wanted to ask about, because I'm hearing a lot about this as a service, continuous pen testing model. Is that something that's real or is that again, marketing material from the pen testing guys? Uh, the vendors I've worked with, I, I haven't really heard anyone pushing that. I've, I've seen like people mention it on Twitter, but really haven't seen an organization like really pushing that as a business model. Um, at least no one sold it to me. I'm sure, I'm sure after someone listens to this, I'm going to get a bunch of LinkedIn messages, <laughs> but, um, I have not seen that, uh, pushed as much as, you know, your traditional, you know, SOW based, mm-hmm. uh, pen test. Are you also doing red teaming, uh, adversarial simulations? Is that part of your arsenal? Uh, yes, it is. We actually just hired um, a lead red teamer um, that I was really excited about to um, do all of that. And we're kind of using it as a, a model for a few different things. One, feeding feeding that data um, back into the blue team. So you're kind of purple team model. Mm-hmm. Um, feeding that data into quarterly uh, tabletop exercises. So having a goal-oriented or statement of work type oriented engagement for that individual they're targeting, you know, X system or X data. And then as they go along through their through their operations, we take that data and put it into a tabletop at the end of that. So then we're testing the efficacy of those systems that we already have in place. Because you don't want to get in a situation where um, you know you're not getting any alerts and you think everything's fine, but something's getting by or something's uh, circumventing or bypassing those controls you have in place. Um, I think it's really important to always test that, um, test yourselves that you know how to respond because um, it's, you know, one day, so, you know, someone's always going to get breached. You look at the, the news every day um, and being able to obviously respond to that is really important. And before, before that happens, you know, trying to prevent it, right? We don't want to just give up on trying to prevent things, which it seems like it seems to be a uh sales tactic for some organizations out there like just give up on that part and just focus on uh the postmortem. and i think we, we you need both um but yeah the the red team is uh a really important key um and component to to the rest of our team i think if you if you read all those breach reports dbir all the all the data that's been collected about you know how companies are hacked it's always the same, I would say, put them into four top buckets. It's uh, some sort of misconfiguration of something. Um, it's uh, phishing, which is uh, old technique, but still very popular and still very successful. Uh, it's the issue of patch management and trying to get your uh, your heads wrapped around getting all your uh, uh, vulnerable devices patched. It, it all boils down to these very basic hygiene things. 
Um, and I've heard the argument, there's a couple of places I'm going with this. I've heard the argument that uh, user education is in incredibly crucial and incredibly important, but over the last 10 years, it just hasn't worked. People still continue to click on things. And the answer is being pitted as uh, zero trust, where you... Um, you, you move to this model where we, we upend what the perimeter is and the perimeter isn't. Can you talk a little bit about two things? How do you go about handling the user education piece and getting people not to click on very dangerous things um, when, when as part of their work they have to click on things? And have you migrated to zero trust? How are you, how are you thinking about the perimeter as it relates to your organization? Yep. So uh, there, there's a really great um, quote on Twitter, and I wish I could remember the individual that tweeted it uh, to, to properly uh, cite them. But basically, they, they said, uh, you know, links are meant to be clicked on, emails are meant to be read, attachments are meant to be open, right? Correct. That is how this is how work system, is done. system was designed. And we're trying to tell users not to do any of that anymore, which I think is... Um, the, the wrong path to go down. Right, so, but even but when they click, they introduce risks to the organization. So how do you balance that? Yep, absolutely. So I think it's uh, part on the the tooling side and and user experience, right? The UX of of that tool, and that that's that's a whole nother deep topic. But having the right tooling in place, so there's you know there's segs out there, there's all kinds of things. Um, then can help get in front of that. So, you know, a system that's clicking on the links, opening the attachments, detonating them in sandboxes, um, that's uh, an absolute option. There's uh, the user education side, which, you know, I and that's feel like some and that's, are... Just to go back to that, that concept, that's before the attachment gets to the end user. Right, right. So let's try to, um, you know, build build some safety around them initially, just like uh, you're building safety into a vehicle, right? You, you started with uh, seat belts, and then you got airbags, and then crumple zones, and accident avoidance, and you, you keep piling on um, to reduce accidents and reduce deaths and accidents, right? So I think there's still solutions that we can provide users um, to allow them to use the tools as they're intended. Um, and keep the bad stuff out of their inbox. But the education side, um, I think there's a lot that can be done. There's an um, organization we, we've partnered with uh, called Elevate Security that I'm really excited. Uh, we're, we're rolling out a pilot right now, um, starting that's tomorrow, that, actually. Uh, behavior change approach, not necessarily yeah. just testing. Uh, I'm, yep. I, I heard Elevate on the podcast talking about this approach. I'm really, really interesting. Yes. Uh, uh, I'd be... I'd, I'd be Curious to hear your uh, your experience after this pilot is rolled out because I think they have a an interesting approach not just to you know do these boring eye numbing tests where people click on stuff but just uh, rewarding behavior change and more importantly when I spoke to Elevate about this it was the uh, the importance of using the tools and the feedback mechanism in the tools and getting end users uh, you can't rely on them not to click but you can you can really get their behavior mindset to change to report suspicious activity. And that's what I liked about what Duo did with uh, with their app and their two-factor authentication app. Is this, you know, sometimes my machine will not go to sleep as I as I as I put it to sleep, and I'll get uh, I'll get these Duo things. And one of the the reporting mechanism on the Duo app is the ability to say this was suspicious or fraudulent, or this might be fraudulent, and that gives metrics a whole new batch of metrics uh, to your defensive team to. Uh, uh, 
you know, perhaps uh, trigger tickets and so on. So I think that's a really, really interesting approach, not just using tools, but using the reporting mechanism in those tools. Exactly. So like letting users uh, make the right decision and rewarding them for that, but also helping them avoid making the wrong choice or making the wrong decision. Um, that, that's what was so exciting about Elevate is they, they really bring the psychological and cognitive um, abilities and, and thought process into how we're educating people. And it kind of, you know, saw a lot of mirroring in their, um, their importance of education and, you know, to, to, to you as well and, and how we go about that. You know, it's not just a stream of data at you. You watch some videos or you click through some slides and then you take a test at the end and then you do that a year from then. It's, it's much more interactive and really uh, engages the users on more of a quarterly, monthly, or, or, or more than that basis, depending on your threat landscape, instead of just once a year, it's just a checkbox, right? We really want people to feel that they're part of the solution and not being like shamed into like, oh, I clicked this, or I opened this attachment, and I wasn't thinking, or it looked legit. We want to we want to help change that mindset. Um, and we're, we're hoping that uh, that's what they'll help us do. Yeah, if Elevate can solve this problem, I think they're probably might be the most important company in the history of security. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Uh, zero trust. Are are you are you there? Are you moving there? Is there a hybrid approach that can work? Uh, talk a little bit about how you view this new paradigm. Uh, I, I really like the thought process around it. We're not there yet, um, but it's definitely something we're looking more into. Um, obviously, the way education works, you know, you, you want uh, information to be accessible and uh, anyone to access it, but obviously you need to have, have controls in place of, of who's allowed to access it. So um, the, the beauty of being able to take a degree program online is you should be able to be anywhere in the world. Um, so there's no like locking locking systems down to you know a specific state or country or IP block. Um, you know, someone in an MBA program could be in Seattle one day at their home and then in Dubai over the weekend or back in Italy the next day. So there's really no way um, to to lock things down like that in the traditional sense. Um, so I think zero trust is going to be. Uh, a big thing for the industry as a whole, but also us going into the future, um, but still very much uh, in a uh, uh, thinking about it stage. You get a lot of pitches, I imagine, your LinkedIn. Uh, uh, <laughs> you get bombarded by sales folks uh, pitching the latest and greatest. Um, you obviously have to filter filter through them because there might be something interesting that pops up. But I, I suspect that most of uh, what you're uh, evaluating and looking at comes from, you know, your peers, your own networking with your peers, uh, 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 industry, whether it's formal or informal groups where you're just knocking heads and trying to figure out how do you go about uh, dealing with this problem, this challenge. So I'm going to ask you this. Can you give me one, two, three of the most interesting, perhaps underhyped uh, technologies that if you've heard about and you've seen, uh, uh, either coming through your LinkedIn or coming through your peer networks, what are uh, technologies and solutions that look really, really interesting to you? Got it. Yeah. So, uh, 
Gosh, that's that's a very long list to try to distill down. Um, I, the easiest one right off the top of my head, uh, going from one conversation to another, would, would definitely be Elevate. Um, they, they really approach approach the training thing uh, and education thing uh, much differently than, than traditional models. Uh, another, uh, another I saw recently uh, was Optics, which uh, spelled with a Y. Um, yeah, they're, yeah, they're building gives... a, a SQL querying engine on top of uh, OS query. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So uh, obviously OS query is incredibly powerful, uh, really, really useful tool. Um, but obviously you need um, a lot of a lot of experience to, to get a lot of value out of that mm -hmm. or you need a little little larger team than mine. Um, so that, that was a really uh, cool tool I saw as well. Um, and then another one... Uh, I'd say even more startup uh, than the other two uh, is Tines IO Tines like a like a fork, uh, basically for uh, automation of uh, security. So you know you have a certain event and you build out a workflow. Uh, just really really interesting tool. Um, you know if you've seen the it helps you decide what you can automate or not. Yeah, yeah. It it it's got that. You can build um, a very uh, English-based uh, workflows. You know, you don't need uh, a specific uh, language uh, to, to build in, so it's very easy for like a tier one analyst to jump in and build like a new workflow for a phishing event or uh, a new workflow for alert from your sim or something like that. And you want specific actions taken, whether it's send an email or upload FTK and draw and dump memory and then bring it back somewhere. It's, it was pretty pretty interesting to see um, its capabilities uh, for for how new they are. I'm um, not I've not heard of Tyne. I gotta go look that up. The other two I know very well. Uh, Elevate I know very well. Optics I don't really know well, but it's really really interesting what they're doing uh, along with Collide and some of the other folks building stuff on top of OS Query. OS Query, by the way, might be the most important. For, uh, open source security tool we've seen since maybe Metasploit. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. The ability to query your entire environment like that um, is, is super powerful. Uh, and the kind of historical uh, telemetry that they're kind of building into upticks uh, was, was really interesting. I've heard uh, there's some EDRs uh, building OS query in. I don't know where where they are in that, but that'll definitely uh, make them a make yeah. them a leader if they're building that type of stuff. And basically goes back to what we were saying earlier with asset management, right? Uh, being able to know what's in your environment and what's on your environment that's that's a big thing. Uh, third party applications on your endpoints, um, being able to get that data quickly uh, is is really important. Last question, IoT in the enterprise. We've heard it described as a disaster. All the, all the worst possible euphemisms could to describe uh, how defenders should deal with uh, all these devices. Uh, do you view that as a big, big risk and a big threat? Or are you just handling that uh, like any other piece of asset in the organization? I would say like any other endpoint, and an endpoint could be a laptop, a printer, uh, a thermostat. Uh, if it's connected to the network, it's it's just an endpoint to me. Um, so categorizing that and understanding what it is, making sure it's in your asset management list, um, knowing what type of data is supposed to go in and go out and where it's supposed to go to. Um, so that, I mean, that goes to basic network hygiene, right? You don't have any, any ACLs 
um, on your on your exit and entry points in your network. Uh, you've got strong VLANing. Again, you don't have any eddies between your VLANs. So I, I don't think it's as big of a risk. Um, if you've got good hygiene there, if you've got good patch management, uh, all, all the basic SANS top 20 still apply, right? Right, but that assumes you know what's in there, right? Right, yeah. If, if you don't know what's in there, um, then... <laughs> And that's a, a much bigger and risk. Isn't that, isn't that why it's described as a disaster? The fact that there's, you know, all these uh, newfangled devices sprinkled throughout uh, cameras, new microphone system, multifunction printers, like all these uh, uh, potential dangers sprinkled around the organization. And the stories I'm hearing is that, you know, it's not that the tools aren't available to patch them or to keep them protected. It's the fact that you don't know what is in there and where they're deployed. Right, that that's definitely uh, an issue for some organizations. But if you're if you're looking at your network traffic, I mean, you should have a finite number of entry and exit points uh, to your network. So if you have basically you know something built in the last ten years, um, whether it's a firewall or UTM or something, um, you should be able to identify those devices on your network. Um, uh, that that goes to say, depending on the organization size, if you can afford those things, I mean, you can you can push it back on the user, right, and have uh, stronger policies. You know, you can't bring these things in. Um, you can have stronger policies around your vendor management, so you don't have um, business units just signing up with uh, vendors and buying stuff. You know, out of uh, out of the normal processes. You know, your shadow IT. Um, there, there's a lot of different ways that that you can attack that problem, but I, I don't view it as any different than if someone walked into our environment, got onto the guest Wi-Fi with their laptop, whether it's a laptop or or Nest thermostat, um, you know, it's still a concern for me uh, and making sure I can identify those. That's really what it goes back to. You, you've got to have the telemetry recording in place to, to know what's on your network. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to let you go with this. What uh, we mentioned your hiring, we mentioned your your priority to make sure you're staffing up properly. Uh, this is where you get to pitch on, you know, what are what open positions you have. Why coming to work at to you is interesting. Talk a little bit about um, uh, some of your staffing needs. Yeah, so uh, right now my team actually has uh, three uh, remaining open positions for 2018, um, and then obviously more to come in 2019. Uh, so right now we're looking for uh, security operations analysts and engineers, and then a um, application security engineer. So um, on the SecOps side, you know, folks that are uh, familiar with the, go ahead. I was just going to interrupt a little bit to talk about um, uh, uh, Security Operations Center. You've built your own or are you outsourcing that as well? Uh, we have not built our own. Um, that is something we'll be looking at uh, probably in MSP uh, to help augment that. Um, and then, you know, see as, as the time progresses, if it makes sense to build one internally. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's really uh, the right fit today for a 2,000-person organization. Um, but maybe another organization, same size, different vertical, it would make sense. But uh, for us today, it, it makes more sense to look at like an MSP to, to augment the you know, 24-7 uh, right. model. Where can people find these uh, uh, job listings? Is it on a career section of the 2U website? 
Yeah, super easy. 2u.com slash And that's careers. the digit 2 and the letter u, not Correct. u2. Right. <laughs> yeah, not u2. Uh, I don't know if they're hiring uh, for SecOps analysts. Yeah, the number so 2. So 2u.com and then just figure out the career section of the website and there's always work. Yeah, and it's super easy to apply. We use Greenhouse and not like some form. You've got to refill out everything that's already on your resume. It's super easy. Um, again, goes back to like the, the whole user experience that, that I really like to make sure is, is smooth. Thank you very much, Chris. All the best with uh, impossible task. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you all the best and I hope we can get back and have a conversation again one day. Awesome. Thanks for so, so much for having me on. 